Hello, everybody. My name is Ashley. You're listening to Let's Get Dark. Thanks for joining me. And thank you for your patience as I've been away for a few months. I appreciate it. I think probably we can all kind of understand that life is a bit much sometimes, and that's what happened. Everybody's fine. Here I am, back at it. Not only is this a very special welcome back to Let's Get Dark episode, but it's also Halloween. Today, I'm going to be telling you a story of the haunting at 6304 Barrel Road. It was a cool afternoon in early March 1981 when Gary and Esperanza Belofsky moved into their new three-bedroom home at 6304 Barrel Road in Alexandria, Virginia. Their new housemate, Bruce, was already there unloading boxes when they arrived. The couple had been married a year, but they were looking at this move as a big step in committing to their future together. While her parents didn't think it was ideal that a single fella move in with them at their new place, they needed help paying the mortgage, and I think we all know how that fucking feels, unless you're one of the lucky few out there just stepping on everyone else's throats on your way up that ladder. Just kidding. Esperanza was 25 with beautiful long black hair and had an independent streak that made her down for an adventure. Gary, 29, was a furniture salesman who was said to be dedicated at making this, his second marriage, a success no matter what. As their first weeks living together unfolded, everyone lived in harmony, unpacking their boxes, sharing dinner, relaxing together, and playing music. There was However, an oddly high amount of apparent clumsiness as far as dishes and glasses were concerned, as those seemed to be slipping off the countertops and breaking quite often, which they all just chalked up to a lot of nights drinking too much wine. Esperanza wasn't sleeping well and was having strange nightmares when she did. She chalked it up to the new house still being unfamiliar to her. Similarly, she brushed off the creaks she heard and shadows that she'd see by telling herself that she was just again unfamiliar with the house. This was all normal. She and Gary would joke about the house possibly being haunted, which Bruce found annoying as he was one of those types of skeptics. You know who you are. One afternoon, shortly after they moved, a neighbor approached Bruce in the yard and asked him if he knew about the history of the house, which he did not. The neighbor proceeded to tell him that eight years prior, a woman had died of suicide in the basement the day before Halloween. Bruce thought the neighbor got a little too much enjoyment out of relaying this information to him, and he wasn't about to encourage what he saw as gossip. He especially didn't want to get the Belofskys all riled up, thinking that there might be some validity to their jokes about a haunting. It's just broken dishes, he told himself. But then, as time went on, the unexplainable events increased. The kitchen sink began to emit a bizarre odor, like smoke mixed with a rotting carcass. At night, they would hear sounds in the walls, and different sounds coming from the basement. They blamed it on the typical old house excuses, saying it was probably moldy pipes and critters trying to get into their garbage. But as days passed, Esperanza grew increasingly uneasy in the home often walking in to find Gary alone playing music, yet she felt certain they were not alone in the house. She felt eyes on them always, especially, she believed, on her husband. 
At this point, even Bruce was growing slightly less skeptical about the situation unfolding on Barrel Road. But considering he'd already withheld the information about the woman dying in the basement for months, he decided to continue to just sit on the information about their new home. Esperanza began to think about stories she'd heard from her family in Cuba of beings that lived in the in-between places, dark, unevolved spirits who attached themselves to vulnerable individuals. Then, one morning, she woke early before anyone else in the home. Quietly, she went downstairs, looking forward to that warm mug of coffee she was about to get started, when she had to stifle a scream. Sitting at her kitchen table was a beautiful redhead, a mug clasped between her hands. Hi, Epi. You may think your life is perfect, but when you're at work, I'm here with your husband. The woman looked her up and down, clearly not impressed. Her eyes were darker than they should be, and behind her, in the darkness of the corner of the room, there seemed to be something that was even darker than the darkness, and it moved in an almost spidery kind of way. Esperanza rushed forward in a horrifying combination of rage and terror when she was violently pulled backward by the arm into her pillow. She thrashed, panicked. Where was she? It took a moment to realize. Whew, that was a dream. Gary had awoken her from a nightmare, hand on her arm, preventing her from falling off the bed in the midst of all the thrashing. She laughed the whole thing off, but it would mark a significant turning point in the activity of the house. As spring became summer and the heat and humidity rose, so did the unexplainable disturbances in the home. Esperanza would later describe it as, quote, heavy-duty activity. All three residents of 6304 Barrel, Bruce, Gary, and Esperanza, were kept up at night with loud knocking and footsteps they could not explain. There was smoke they could not identify the source of. Its stench filled the kitchen, setting off smoke alarms, but they were never able to identify the source. Glasses were breaking every single week. To them, it seemed undeniable. The presence in the home was growing emboldened, getting stronger. Esperanza came home one afternoon to find that her car had been unlocked and moved from where she had parked it. It was positioned in a way that appeared to be ready to crash right into the house. She confronted both Gary and Bruce, but both men vehemently denied involvement in moving her car. However, this was the final straw for Bruce. He still had to give the disclaimer that he remained skeptical about it being quote-unquote supernatural activity because he's one of those types, you know. And being that I'm one of these types, I feel compelled to say supernatural does just literally mean of a manifestation or event attributed to some force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature, fella. But you know, do you friend? But he finally told Esperanza and Gary about the woman in the basement who had hung herself just below the kitchen on Halloween. It was October 1973. Raymond and Mary Conlon lived at the home on Barrel Road sharing mixed feelings about the large house, which was occupied by just the two of them. Mary had battled with depression throughout her life, but she felt certain that something about the house made it worse. One day she decided she just didn't want to do it anymore. 
and she took a garden rope into the basement, threw it over one of the rafters, and hung herself. Understandably, this information knocked Esperanza on her ass just a little. Immediately, she connected Mary Conlin with the woman who had mocked her from her nightmare, and again, she thought of her family's warnings, particularly of the Orisha Babalu Aye, the deity of healing who walked hand-in-hand with death. Babalu Aye hid skin badly scarred from disease behind its long hair, and it would often turn on people if it felt it was being ignored or mocked. Babalu Aye have the ability to give you seizures and disease and even drag you into death. Though sometimes they would simply choose to sit and watch as a malevolent spirit entered you through your dreams, taking possession of your body. No big deal. The situation obviously increased tensions between the housemates, with Gary feeling the need to defend his wife, and really only having Bruce there to physically take it out on. The two men would fight into the night, further traumatizing Esperanza, who would sit in bed with the covers pulled up to her chin, unable to find comfort and solace anywhere in her home. Eventually, though, the men processed their feelings a little bit, and the anger dissipated. All three residents could agree that there was something going on in the home, that they weren't alone, and that it was something that they were going to have to take a united front against. Esperanza tried to do as much as she could to learn about what had happened to Mary, taking it as her responsibility because Mary had seemingly revealed herself to her. But she was met with totally uncooperative officials who cited the Privacy Act and provided her with nothing. But the first responders to the scene the day of Mary's death did remember some odd details from that day. Firefighters remembered Raymond Conlon as standing shell-shocked in an unusually immaculate home, simply repeating, she's in the basement, to them, but nothing more. County Firefighter Wallace Dean described the scene. We went down the stairs and turned right and saw nothing. Then I turned left and there she was. Maybe it was the angle at which she was hanging, but it gave me an eerie, funny, strange type of feeling. As I'm sure it would in most cases, really, I would have to say, but... Additionally, Esperanza spoke to some of the neighbors about the incident and was able to confirm that Mary's death by hanging was her second known attempt as she had tried eight weeks prior to her successful one. The local opinion, which we all surely know should be taken with a grain of salt, was that she was quote-unquote terribly disturbed, which may have been the case, but there are also about 57,000 other possibilities that gossipy bitch neighbors may just have not been privy to. They said that Mary had seemed volatile before her death and that her marriage appeared incredibly unstable. After her death, Ray became a shut-in and was rarely seen leaving the home. About three years later, he remarried. Esperanza felt a kind of kindred connection with Mary in that sense, as she had always been sensitive about the fact that Gary had been married once before her. She thought if Mary truly was lingering around the home, it had likely been quite painful for her to have witnessed Ray's new marriage and life carried on with someone else. With this newfound understanding of the spirit they believed was occupying their home, the Belofskys grew to accept her. Esperanza said that there was a level of convincing themselves that she hadn't caused any harm and that she wasn't going to be able to overpower them. 
their acceptance evolved into a kind of enjoyment in living with an unexplainable supernatural being. Esperanza even went so far as to tell Mary that she could live there and just not to break anything. It was just like a small disclaimer for a new guest. But somehow, after that request, the occurrences in the home began to grow less threatening, less violent. Instead of glasses being flung off the counter and shattering, balloons would pop at parties, bobby pins would scatter onto the floor, and the couple felt that perhaps Mary had just grown to like them too. Bruce, however, was not convinced. He still wasn't even sure that there was anything actually hinky going on in the first place, let alone that any and all odd occurrences in the house should be attributed to a supernatural entity. He mildly regretted telling the Belofskys about Mary altogether, as he felt it had caused a rift for the fact that he'd withheld the information for so long, on top of the fact that they truly now just attributed every single thing going on in the house to this dead woman. But in June of 1981, the Belofsky's certainty that they were in the midst of a grade A haunting prompted them to contact the American Institute of Parapsychology, where they were put in contact with Dr. James McLennan. He was a Vietnam vet turned grad student studying parapsychology and sociology. Dr. McLennan was thrilled to have the opportunity to study the Belofsky's ghost, in one of the first cases that he studied in what would turn out to be a lifelong career in paranormal research. McLennan pretty much moved himself into the home over the next few months, making fast friends with all the housemates, even skeptical Bruce. He was amped up and ready to go, however, he experienced absolutely none of the activity that he was told about. In fact, although he determined that there was a rate of two or more paranormal experiences a month per the Belofskys and Bruce, he also made sure to include the note that the trio, quote, reframed anomalous experiences attributing the unusual episodes to Mary. In McLennan's work to that point, he had developed an overarching theory of the paranormal, which was that spirits are not always as they seem, but often point to a need for therapy. This still leaves open the possibility that they are, at times, exactly as they seem, and in the case of the Belofskys, he didn't see anything but two friendly people who were, quote, very happily married. He stated that he saw no signs of unaddressed psychological issues manifesting as paranormal activity. As for the Belofskys, they couldn't really care less about the doctor's lack of evidence at their home. They believed that Mary was resentful about the fact that he was trying to study her and refused to cooperate. And this is a legitimate theory if we take into account all the cases that I've discussed on the show where even the most active locations being studied with the most high-tech equipment can result in little to no evidence because something just doesn't seem to work out when these anomalies are being studied. I'm thinking of Skinwalker Ranch, especially in case that shocks anybody. In physics and psychology, there is something called the observer effect, which is the fact that observing a situation or phenomenon necessarily changes it. Observer effects are especially prominent in physics, where observation and uncertainty are fundamental aspects of modern quantum mechanics. The observer effect, which is also called the Hawthorne effect, is where people in studies change their behavior because they are watched. 
A series of studies in the 1920s first shone light on the phenomenon after the researchers investigated how several conditions, i.e. lighting and brakes, affected workers' output. Output went up during the studies, and it returned to normal after the research team left. This led to a whole era of research that attempted to control for the effect an observer can have on an experiment. Esperanza and Gary said that after McLennan's first visit that they experienced black smoke dancing up from the drain and dishes rattled in the kitchen sink even though there were no vibrations felt at the time in the home. They were confident that the only explanation for what they were experiencing was a supernatural one. And so, when McLennan suggested they conduct a seance, the Belofskys were all for it. It was a cooler July evening when the foursome sat down for the seance, Bruce obviously reluctantly so, considering his ongoing qualms with the situation possibly being a paranormal one. But despite his skepticism in the matter, he sat down with McLennan and the Velofskys, and he did his best to help guide old Mary, or at least what they thought was Mary, toward the light. The couple thought Mary needed help more than anything. She must just be so tormented by the things that drove her to take her life that she couldn't move past this realm or the walls of the home on Barrel Road. Esperanza thought about the evolved ghost her grandparents spoke of. The ghost could serve as guides or helpers if they chose, and she thought Mary was likely protecting her in this way. But she also knew that she was not happy being stuck in the home after dying. To help ease everyone into the seance, the group had a little wine, a little weed, dimmed the lights, lit some candles, and overall, sounded like they were trying to fuck Mary more than anything. But it looks like the conditions for sex and seances aren't that far apart, huh? Eventually, they grew more serious about their task, quieting down and beginning to shift their focus to Mary, to the basement, and to her death. They collectively began to envision a glowing, soft, soothing light, a doorway Mary could go through. But Mary didn't even make an appearance that night. Though, after all was said and done, the household experienced a noticeable decrease in activity after that night. The couple felt that even if they hadn't been able to send Mary through the veil to the other side, they surely must have helped her in some way, perhaps easing some of her emotional turmoil in the very least. And as they had with the activity they experienced in the home, they now chalked this decrease in activity to Mary yet again. Bruce, however, felt the unfolding events only helped support his original theory that there really wasn't a haunting taking place and that this ghost never even existed to begin with. But sticking to tradition, they'd convinced themselves that she existed and was just laying low for the time being, and that was the explanation for the lack of activity. Whatever the truth may have been, the seance was the final straw for Bruce, and a few weeks later, he moved out, leaving Esperanza and Gary alone in the house for a few weeks before they found another roommate, a woman named Cindy. In stark contrast to Bruce, Cindy was a believer in the paranormal, and she did not like the spirit that she felt resided in the Belofsky's home. Although the spirit's presence had lessened, Cindy claimed to see a ghostly woman in her bedroom window on multiple occasions, and Gary still felt that she enjoyed teasing him. When Cindy first described the apparition to Gary and Esperanza, they couldn't help but laugh. 
The woman she described matched perfectly to the redheaded woman that Esperanza had seen in her dreams, yet she hadn't shared that information with her beforehand. Cindy, less amused by the antics of this ghostly woman, just moved out. Unfazed by their inability to keep anyone else living in their home, the Belovskys took their story to the local reporter, Rose Marie Donovan, who profiled the house on October 30, 1981, for the Alexandria Journal. The piece on the home was titled, Local Places Where Things Go Bump in the Night. And in the article, Esperanza and Cindy described the entity as a fairly friendly presence of a woman named Mary. But the story was overall just a Halloween fluff piece for the neighborhood. Shortly after, the Belovskys found two new roommates, Joe Baddens and Evans Davies, a couple of dudes around their age, and two dogs. Now that four young people lived in the house, the human activity increased drastically as the house became somewhat of a party house, and the inhuman activity then decreased even more. The Belosky's focus was able to shift from constantly obsessing about the spirit of the woman who had died in their basement, and they began to entertain their own interests once again. Gary got back into playing music, and Esperanza began to make friends in the neighborhood. Dr. McLennan followed up in the spring of 1982 and learned that there had been barely any activity since Christmas, nothing more than a few broken glasses and a random fire alarm. The Belovskys came to believe that Mary had finally moved on and life would carry on as it had been before she joined their cozy little family. Unfortunately for the couple, though, the tragedies at 6304 Barrel Road didn't begin with Mary Conlin, and there may have been more insidious forces at play inside the home than simply the woman who had ended her life there. Exactly one year before Mary hung herself from a basement rafter at the home on Barrel Road, Colonel William Jordan was going through his very own personal crisis in that very same home. Jordan suffered from grand mal epilepsy and disorientation after a seizure was typical, but in that house, everything just seemed amplified, especially his confusion. He swore he saw movement in the shadows sometimes, things that appeared blacker than black, moving in the corners of the room. Even hearing gunfire and loud alarms ringing off inexplicably. He and his wife Virginia and their children had lived a relatively normal existence without incident until the day about 12 years prior when he signed a liability waiver that entered him into a chemical warfare experiment. No one knew it at the time, but it, it was known by codename MK Ultra. If you aren't already aware of the U.S. government's project MKUltra, you can go back and check out episode 34 and 35 of this very podcast where I covered that fucked up project in all its glory for two thorough episodes. The brief synopsis is that the U.S. Army wanted to learn how mind-altering substances could affect our soldiers and in turn how our military could employ these same tactics against enemy agents. The CIA's mind control program, as it's often referred to. At the time, there was a prominent, free-spirited hippie culture, and William Jordan saw it as an opportunity to take a good trip for an even better cause and get paid for it to boot. Unfortunately, as one might imagine, a trip under such circumstances without appropriate mental preparation and settings was not exactly ideal or 
what was expected. He would later tell Senator Edward Kennedy in 1977 during the MK Ultra trials, it is a complete personality disintegration. In some instances, a person becomes almost like a schizophrenic paranoid without any ability to control his own actions, his emotions, his thoughts. Jordan felt that the trip changed him in ways that he could never get back, and then one year later, he developed grand mal epilepsy. There is no absolute link between LSD and late-onset seizure disorders, but Will and Jenny felt certain it had something to do with it. And I think, you know, it's, it's like these men signed up for, volunteered for this program under these specific circumstances that really they didn't know you know, dosage and whatnot. But I don't think those were even followed. You know, they were overdosed. They were put into bizarre situations that were meant for almost torture under high doses of LSD. So it's like, you can't really say this is like a normal... I mean, look, listen to me, the the hallucinogenic advocate over here, but this isn't a normal, you know, dosage, a normal circumstance of taking mind-altering substances. This is like the government being the government. So, yeah, it scarred this man for life. After going 10 years without doctors unable to help and still being active duty, Jordan committed himself to getting justice for himself and the others that volunteered for the MK Ultra program. He wanted medical follow-up, official recognition, and ended up moving to Virginia simply to be closer to the commanding officers he hoped would help them. But I think we can take a guess about how that all panned out. As is standard behavior within the U.S. military-industrial complex, they use human beings as tools, experiments, objects, and then when that treatment causes damage, they deny, raise their hands in the air, and retreat. Will Jordan's seizures were growing increasingly worse. The side effect of this was more time spent in the nearly paralyzed state of recovery, being stuck in the house, going mad, attempting to discern if the shadows dancing along the walls were in his mind or were they truly there. He felt like the walls were closing in on him. Whispers lingered in the stale air of the home like the fluttering wings of moths in the night. Jordan felt mocked by them, like the house knew it was sending him into a downward spiral of hopelessness. Eventually, after months of despair, Will decided he was either going to lose his family, his sanity, or he could retire from service and continue to push for justice for him and his fellow volunteers from a mildly less insane comfort of the state of Florida. After this move, his life did improve drastically. Esperanza and Gary hadn't experienced anything unusual in months when the summer of 1982 rolled its sticky buns around and they had begun to move on with their lives. However, the fire alarm continued to go off with no explanation, and one day Esperanza swore that a rug was pulled out from under her feet and she fell down the stairs. Luckily, she wasn't injured badly. And it's not certain if that actually happened or if she just mistook clumsiness for the rug being pulled up from beneath her, but it scared her badly enough that she made out a will. One evening in mid-June, the Belovskis were out to dinner, leaving their two new housemates at the home with the dogs, when a loud noise abruptly sounded in the middle of a quiet night. Joe described the noise as being loud as a bullhorn, and Evans described it as, quote, a bull or an elephant in a tin can factory, whatever that means. 
The men were pretty freaked out, waiting with the dogs until Esperanza and Gary got back home. But when they did, the couple just kind of laughed the men's story off. The following day, smoke began emerging from the kitchen sink again, something that hadn't happened in months. Gary had once stopped looking for the cause of the smoke whenever it appeared, but that day he went down and peered in the basement a while to see if he could spot the source. Of course, there was nothing aside from the vast darkness and whatever those shadows were flickering and dancing, somehow blacker than night. About a week later, while Esperanza took a shower one afternoon, she heard the closed door creak open. Thinking a dog had pushed open the door, she called out, but there was no dog there. She reached out, shut the door, and got back to showering. Then it happened again before she had even got back under the spray of the shower head fully. She got out of the shower, and you know how annoying that is when you're all wet, checked the hall, and there was no one in sight. This time, she latched the door shut securely and got back to the warmth of the shower when she heard it creak open for a third time. And that's when she knew that the ghost was back. Initially, she tried to wave it off, telling herself and any concerned parties that it was just Mary kicking up again. All was fine. But there was something off about it this time. The shower situation made Esperanza feel like it was almost mocking her in a way. At a time when she was vulnerable and naked, it wasn't like the stuff that she had felt was merry in the past. Later that night, the Belovskis joined Joe and Evans at a get-together where they drank and partied, coming home well after midnight. They came home and passed out in bed with their two dogs around 3 a.m., and not even one hour later, after they were all fast asleep, a spark ignited in the kitchen, taking only seconds to set the room ablaze. Evans and Joe were the first to wake and recognize that there was a fucking fire taking place in the house. They escaped out of their bedroom windows while the fire engulfed the rest of the home. Esperanza called 911 while Gary attempted to make his way downstairs. On the call, the dogs could be heard whining about the smoke. Fire Inspector Kenneth Long dispatched two trucks to the scene, but by the time they arrived, it was too late. Joe and Evans watched horrified and stunned as the flames devoured the home, knowing that Esperanza, Gary, and the dogs were all inside and none had made an escape. Gary managed to get downstairs and halfway across the living room before he was consumed by likely the smoke and then flames. Esperanza's body was found asphyxiated in the master bedroom. Firefighter Dan Bickham, who responded to the scene that day, wasn't supposed to work, but picked up the shift last minute. Coincidentally, he had also been a first responder nine years earlier to Mary Conlon's death scene. He told Medium.com that, quote, there's just a lot of coincidences with this whole thing. It kind of makes you wonder. The fire was officially declared an accident, but it was confirmed that it was started in the kitchen directly above the spot in the basement where Mary hung herself. Media outlets took this opportunity to announce that ghosts had officially killed two people, making them one of the very rare cases where the death of a person has been attributed to supernatural activity. This may or may not be accurate. We may never know. What the headlines likely do not have correct is the spirit that they believe is responsible for taking the lives of the Belovskis.
A psychic visiting the property gave his opinion that it wasn't Mary he sensed that was generating the evil energy he felt at the home, which he described as, quote, waves of evil. Was this the darkness lurking in the shadows of Will Jordan's time in the home, driving him into despair and self-doubt? Maybe Mary Conlon was the first recorded instance of this evil getting what it wanted, a life. Every culture has tales of entities that prey on those who are vulnerable, who take pain, grief, isolation, and manipulate those things to slowly but surely spread its insidious influence on that person, using these emotions as energy to gain access to our world, and in some cases, possibly taking a life. Over time, multiple residents of 6304 Barrel Road told friends or family that at times, it seemed like the walls moved, like there was something in the darkness of the home's corners that seemed to breathe and move with the structure itself. Is the dark energy at the home a specific entity, a person? Or has the evil pervaded the walls and actually become the home itself? Happy Halloween, my babes. What do you think about the home at 6304 Barrel Road? Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your patience as I was going through it this <laughs> these past few months. Have you ever just been going through so much and you think you're coming out the other side and you're thinking to yourself like, damn girl, did you fucking learn some fucking lessons? And then the universe is like, no bitch, you only thought you were done. Let me crumble every last bit of that current reality for you. So that was an interesting time. And guess what? I'm back and I am ready to keep getting darker and darker with you babes so if you have any thoughts on today's show email me at let's get dark pod at gmail.com head over to let's get dark pod on instagram and follow me there i just love you guys so much and i'm so excited to be back at it i can't wait to keep scaring the pants off you guys so if you could Share this episode with your friends, with your family, with anyone you may know that would like to hear a scary story told by a babe like me. All right, I'll see you next time. Have a great everything. Bye.